every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Money Talk for Thursday the 22nd of February as we weave our way towards the end of the week. This is Peter Lewis with today's top business stories from across Asia. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Fed officials remained highly attentive to inflation risks and were wary of cutting interest rates too quickly. That's according to the minutes of its January meeting and signalling a reduction in borrowing costs won't happen soon. Policymakers wanted to see more evidence of disinflation to dismiss upside risk. Traders in the swaps market are now betting the first rate cut will happen in June, with the odds for a 25 basis cut then standing around 72%. EU member states have agreed a new package of sanctions against Russia, which for the first time include measures targeting Chinese and Indian companies accused of supporting Moscow's war effort. The sanctions will target three companies in mainland China and one in India. HSBC's pre-tax profits fell 80% year-on-year in the final three months of 2023 as it took a $3 billion charge on the value of its stake in a Chinese bank and a further write-down on commercial real estate. Profits for the fourth quarter declined to $1 billion from $5 billion a year earlier. And for the full year of 2023, HSBC posted a 78% jump in pre-tax profit to $30.3 billion, but that was below analyst forecasts. HSBC's bottom line was also affected by a hefty $3 billion charge from its stake in China's Bank of Communications. China has banned major institutional investors from reducing equity holdings at the open and close of each trading day. All market activity by computer-driven quant funds, which rely on complex automated trading strategies, will be closely scrutinised under a new monitoring scheme jointly run by the Shanghai and Shenzhen bosses and the China Securities Regulatory Commission. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. And with a view from Taiwan, it's Ross Feingold, Director of Research at Cyrus Consulting in Taipei. If you want to get in touch, please take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks were mixed on Wednesday as minutes from the last meeting of the Federal Reserve's Monetary Policy Committee said the central bank was highly attentive to inflation risks and the implications of cutting interest rates too soon. The S&P 500 paired earlier losses to close 0.1% higher at 4,982. The Dow traded 48 points higher, that's 0.1% at 38,612. The Nasdaq closed lower for a third day, ending the session with losses of 0.3% at 15,581. After the bell, NVIDIA posted record revenue up 265% and more than tripled its sales last quarter as it continued to benefit from booming demand for artificial intelligence chips. Revenue was $22.1 billion versus an estimated $20.4 billion and the company in November guided investors towards about $20 billion. Net income came in at $12.3 billion, also beating analyst forecasts. The chipmaker also provided an optimistic outlook on its revenue for the current quarter, saying that it expected about $24 billion in revenue. That's better than Wall Street analysts had predicted. The company said sales to China declined significantly in the fourth quarter due to US government licensing requirements. And NVIDIA chief executive Jensen Huang said accelerated uh, computing and generative AI have hit the tipping point. 
He said demand is surging worldwide across companies, industries and nations. And shares of NVIDIA rose 8% in after-hours trading. Mainland Chinese and Hong Kong markets opened lower, but rebounded to close higher, suggesting that the so-called national team was once again in action buying ETFs. Stocks were also buoyed by news that the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges were restricting quant trading. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rose as much as 3.1% before falling back to close 256 points higher. That's 1.6% at 16,503, close to a seven-week high. And the city's benchmark has risen 6.6% so far this month. The Hang Seng Property Index rose 3% to a one-month one month high as pressure increases on Financial Secretary Paul Chan to move the remaining property market curbs in his budget on the 28th of February. Mainland China's CSI 300 climbed as much as 2.6% before pairing gains to end the day 1.4% higher. But futures markets are pointing to a decline for the Hang Seng of about 200 points at the open, uh, projected to start trading at around about 16,300. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this Thursday morning, we welcome our regular weekly commentator, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Hi, good morning, Peter. And also with us is Nick Marrow, who's lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Morning, Nick. Good morning. Uh, let's start with trade. China's shipping more goods to the US via Mexico, circumventing the steep tariffs imposed by the Trump administration and retained by Joe Biden's White House. Figures from container trade statistics show the number of containers shipped from China to Mexico hit 881,000 in the first three quarters of 2023. Uh, That's up from 689,000 in the same period of 2022. The rise comes because Mexico's overtaken China as the biggest exporter of goods to the US last year. And truck shipments also across the border into the US have continued to increase quickly. As a result of the tariff, shipments arriving directly from China now account for less than 15% of US imports. That's down from more than a fifth in 2017. Mexico is not the only beneficiary of China's move to export goods that could end up later in the US. Uh, Beijing's also running trade surpluses with countries like Vietnam, Singapore and the Philippines, which in turn are running widening surpluses with the US, suggesting that China's manufacturers are continuing to benefit from US consumers' demands for their goods. Um, Andrew, do you want to kick off? Um, It shows the difficulties, really, doesn't it, of trying to implement uh, these trade uh, sanctions and to try and restructure um, global supply chains, because as soon as you sort of block them off at one point, they reappear somewhere else. Well, what what I find it very amazing, and I would love uh, if somebody could explain this to me, uh, exports are always country of origin. So I find it absolutely amazing that Mexico imports Chinese goods and then exports them to United States with country of origin being Mexico when it isn't, unless there is a huge falsification of the data, which I don't believe it because the Americans are not stupid either. So frankly, I really don't buy this as it stands that the Chinese simply export their goods to Mexico and Mexico exports to the United States and nobody notices. Mm-hmm. It is, this cannot be, it is true to the extent that it's been reported. Okay, but I love to know how this is done, unless it's done illegally, in which case it will not be reported. So I remain, I remain very skeptical because country of origin 
rules and regulations are incredibly strict. Well, let's let's uh, ask let's ask the expert. We have Nick Marrow here. Um, Nick, how how is this happening? Is, is it maybe because um, Chinese companies are investing in plants in the first place in Mexico? Well, I'll say there are maybe two components of that. One component is indeed that we are seeing Chinese companies who are going abroad specifically to elongate their supply chains um, and to kind of retain their presence in markets like the U.S. to get around those punitive trade barriers. And that's something that we've seen with Vietnam in the past. It's something that we've seen also uh, with other parts of Southeast Asia. It's this emerging story for Mexico. So there is this genuine um, kind of lengthening of supply chains that reflects that investment story. But to Andrew's point as well, um, I would say that that a lot of that illegal activity is indeed happening. I mean, of course, this is anecdotal from what I've been able to see or or to read or hear from people on the ground. Um, but you do have goods that apparently are being produced in China, shipped to a third destination, and the labels are either being switched or it's being exported to a Chinese subsidiary, and then that's the switch is happening that way, and then it's making its way into the U.S. market. Um, and so there, there is... I think a significant question here around illegal transshipments. And this is something that Vietnam actually was struggling with back in 2018, 2019, right at the onset of the trade war, uh, when US scrutiny was really starting to pick up um, around this. But the question indeed is, why has it taken so long for US customs authorities to um, kind of wake up to this? Uh, I think right now we are seeing a lot more attention on Mexico's role in the US-China trade relationship. And that's going to bring a lot more scrutiny to that market. Uh, but you're you're exactly right, Andrew, in the sense that, um, you know, there, there do seem to be some really weird, potentially illegal things happening right now. Um, and the policy response by the U.S. has been surprisingly slow. Actually, Peter, uh, thanks. Thanks for that. Thanks for the support, as you say. Uh, look, I used to be a kind of a mini expert on the rules and regulations concerning re-exports from Hong Kong. And I still keep an eye on them. And the specific rules is a complete nightmare of detail. In other words, there are goods that are imported into Hong Kong from China, and then they are re-exported. Now, it depends how much value added is done to that. And very frequently, the goods that have been exported from China to Hong Kong were originally exported from Hong Kong to China, processed, and then re-exported -re to Hong Kong, only to be re-exported to somebody else. <laughs> And Hong Kong has detailed statistics on all that. Now, if you are interested in a wet and painful, uh, dull weekend to read through those and then commit suicide, you're very welcome <laughs> to that. But, but these rules and numbers do exist. That's why I just refuse to believe that uh, nobody has noticed. And this is something that will continue to take place. Yeah. If the Hong Kong Kongese can do it so well, Come on, the American the American import service can also do that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a great parallel here in terms of um, if you look at Xinjiang trade flows, for example. In theory, imports from Xinjiang should be under strict scrutiny, even kind of prohibitions in the U.S. But if you go to a U.S. grocery store, you might find dates or other agricultural products that are explicitly labeled as coming from Xinjiang. Um, and I think as kind of my friends have looked into that who are in the legal space, the consulting space, the the conclusion has been 
the U.S. Customs Authorities are somewhat overwhelmed by the volumes of goods that are coming in, um, and they don't have enough people on the ground to effectively either monitor or implement the policies that the administration has come out with to prevent these goods from getting into the U.S. And so um, I wonder, this is just speculation on my point, or on, on, on my part. I'm wondering if it is just down to human error as well um, on the fact that, um, you know, sometimes you just don't have enough people or enough people who know what they're doing um, to prevent these trade flows from from seeping in. Um, but I mean, to your point, yeah, I imagine that it must be incredibly uh, complicated and detailed to, to um, you know, track all these trade flows, which maybe might also explain why these trade flows are going to third markets where the level of detail maybe is not as robust. It it sort of does sort of though highlight the the paradox, doesn't it? The the U.S. wants to create these alternative supply chains away from China, instead in partner uh, countries, friendshoring, I think it calls it. But then those Chinese companies are building those supply chains in those countries in the in the first place. So it makes it hard, really, doesn't it, to try and avoid the fact um, that. You know, China is exporting, maybe over-exporting a lot of goods worldwide, and it's hard to, to avoid that, particularly when you have a consumer in the U.S. that's anxious to buy cheaper goods. Yeah. Um, and if you look at trade data over the last year in particular, uh, really maybe starting from around 2022, we'll see that, you know, one of China's top export destinations is now Southeast Asia. Um, mm. And when you think about the trade dynamics that exist there, there's no way that consumers or businesses in Southeast Asia could be consuming as many goods as would be needed to justify that shift away from the U.S. There's just not enough demand in that region. And under the same point, to, to what you mentioned earlier, Peter, um, you have many countries in Southeast Asia who are now running larger trade surpluses with the U.S. Mm. Um, and so that suggests that, you know, whether it's transshipments or new supply chains uh, being formulated around uh, new investment patterns. At the end of the day, the final demand is still very much in the US uh, or in the West more generally, I should say. Um, how the good gets to that final market, whether it's going directly or via third, fourth markets, um, that's maybe this new story which is emerging, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the underlying trades patterns are changing. Um, Andrew, this is going to be a bigger and bigger political issue, isn't it, in, in election year? The US is already saying it's going to act if China dumps goods onto our global markets, and they're particularly worried about things like electric vehicles, batteries, solar panels. This, is, uh, this, this issue isn't going to go away, is it? No, not absolutely. And uh, with uh, Trump, as we already know, he's threatening either to impose the 60% overall tariff to all Chinese inputs, or simply make his life much easier by saying anything which is not produced in the States and comes into the States gets taxed at 10%. So that solves the country of origin basis because it doesn't matter where it comes from, from outer Mongolia via, via Patagonia, it still gets taxed at 10%. And in a way, it is a very simple way of, of solving the country of issue uh, situation. Yeah. What does it do to global trade flows, though, and also to, to the U.S. economy? Uh, two things. Oh, God, I'm groaning a bit because the net export component in United States GDP growth is very, very small indeed, as in fact it is in China. So the notion that somehow if you begin to hinder trade, the world collapses it is patently untrue, 
And the answer to that is it depends. Depends on which countries are you looking at, where they are export dependency in terms of the net export component. Net export, that means exports minus inputs, is big enough to have an impact on their GDP. In the case of China, historically, for every 1% GDP growth, about 10 basis points on average were attributed by net exports. And that is the contribution of trade to China's GDP growth. The rest was investment and consumption. So if this comes to, to fruition and uh, Trump declares war on everybody else who is not American in terms of trade, uh, it's, going to, it's going to distort, it's going to distort and disrupt. But we have to keep in mind that this is only going to be trade with the rest of us or with the United States. Well, in some cases, trade with the United States is not all that important. So trade will be diverted away from the United States, or it will simply cease altogether. And that is going to impact the states as well as everybody else. You know, I'm not as gloom and doom on that, that if Trump gets elected, we're all going to die. If Trump gets elected, we will all need to do a lot more thinking. And a lot of companies are going to be hurt, but the world as a whole is not. Mm. Uh, Nick, what, what are your thoughts on that? The, the world may be dividing into two blocks, trading with the US and then trading with everyone else. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, that discussion is already very much underway. Um, this kind of slow descent into decoupling, which would become a lot less slow if, if Trump returns. I think, I mean, to Andrew's point as well, um, we have to remember that um, the blowback onto the U.S. would likely be pretty significant. I mean, regardless if it's a 10% blanket tariff across all imports coming to the U.S. or a 60% tariff on all Chinese goods, I mean, the U.S. is still a big consumer of goods that are produced beyond the U.S.'s shores. Um, and so higher prices, in theory, uh, would lead to you know, higher inflation domestically. Um, and that would you know very much complicate the economic situation, given that the Federal Reserve has worked very hard to bring interest rates or excuse me, uh, inflation down um, over the past couple of quarters. Um, and to introduce such a supply side shock would be, I think, just very, it would breed a lot of uncertainty in terms of where the U.S. economy is going um, and whether the government has enough kind of policies in its toolkit to respond to all of this. I guess the other thing that we'd be looking at very closely and which we are looking at closely this year um, is the fact that um, beyond kind of the threats to trade and what might happen if, if he were to come back in the office, the uncertainty that's generated as a result of all of this um, does have a very important um, implication for sentiments and in turn for the willingness of businesses to spend, for example. I think a lot of companies, particularly who are involved in the manufacturing sector, are you know, making these long-term decisions, taking advantage of things like the IRA or the CHIPS Act signature Biden era policies, which might be dismantled if Trump comes back into office. Um, and so, you know, these investments that are being considered in theory would be lasting for, you know, decades. And so if there is a risk that he were to come back, dismantle those programs, take away the incentives, which companies are right now already struggling to access, given kind of the slow moving machine that is the U.S. government, that would inflict a lot more um 
kind of damage, I'd say, to the investment flows that we're now seeing coming back into the U.S. Um, and that raises a lot of questions around the current reshoring or even nearshoring trends, given that, um, you know, if, say, Trump were to pull out of USMCA, a lot of the Chinese interest or other non-North American interest into Mexico as a vehicle to access the U.S. market, those flows might also be disrupted. Okay, well, let's move on. There's a couple of other stories I want to talk about with you this morning. First of all, um, China's two main, stock, two main stock exchanges have frozen the accounts of a major quantitative hedge fund for three days after the money manager dumped about $360 million of shares within a minute. On Monday, Ningbo Lingshuan Investment Management Partnership executed the sell orders as shares declined, disrupting normal trading order, according to the Shenzhen Exchange in a, in a statement. And then in separate statements from the Shenzhen and Shanghai bourses, they're going to take a closer look at quant trading, including that made by northbound investors via the mainland to Hong Kong, all market activity by computer-driven quant funds, which rely on complex automated trading strategies, are going to be closely scrutinised. And yesterday, Bloomberg's reporting that China has banned major institutional investors from reducing equity holdings at the open and close of each trading day. Um, Andrew, first of all, um, well, let me ask you, why at the open and the close? <laughs> um, you know, why not other times of the day? But what do you make of this? These restrictions seem to be um, uh, snowballing. May I give you a Mickey Mouse answer? Effectively, what you say is if you open at 100 and then you close at 50, clearly you sold 50. But if you open at 100 and you close at 100, clearly you might have done a lot of naughty things in between, but not at your net position. Yeah, I know. How about... Uh, they'll stop them doing them between 12 o'clock and 1 o'clock or 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. As I said, this, this, is, this is relatively easy. Uh, what I have a terrible feeling that I'm going to get stuck with in the same way, if you remember, I used to go on and on about defense stocks and so on. I'm going to also get stuck now by going on and on. Please, please, regulators, don't treat symptoms, treat the causes. They are obsessed with prices going down. And if you stop the prices going down, then everything is okay. No, everything is not okay. Please find out why are people selling the stocks. And if they're saying, well, it is a numerical calculation that leads to that. Usually, these numerical calculations are based always on the expectation that either demand will disappear or that the price is not right. All kinds of different things. So it isn't, it is not as they call it, speculation, uh, it is simply trying to sell expensively and buy cheaply. And if you're asking why people are doing that, well, then we should not be discussing this at all in a money problem. <laughs> if, we, if we're reduced to the level of why greed, greed is good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Treatment of symptoms. Wrong. Mm. Okay. Three yeah. causes. Next and that goes for everybody, not just Chinese. Okay, and incidentally, the Chinese are not the only one that have done that. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, the Japanese is also pretty famous for doing that, and there are all kinds of different pressures that have been exerted on other stock markets. So I'm not for one moment saying that this is an idiom of Chinese. If Nick, if I was a, an, an overseas index fund, I would 
pull out of the China market altogether because if you're an index fund, you have fiduciary duties to your clients to uh, redeem uh, their funds when, when clients want their money back. And if there's rebalancings to be done, the index funds always do them at the close of the day. That's the way in which you rebalance to make sure you can continuously match the index. This is making the market uninvestable, isn't it, for certain types of funds? Yeah. And when you, you know, read some of the headlines just in the last couple of weeks or months, I mean, that story of China being uninvestable, that keeps coming back. Um, and I think, I mean, a lot of this, just like Andrew said, it comes down to the signaling that's coming out of the government. Um, I mean, when you talk to people, people, you know, they're, they're already tempering their views on the Chinese mainland market. They're already kind of very cautious about where things are going. And then when you see these regulatory moves, um, that just makes sentiment so much worse. Um, I mean, some of the big kind of flashy moves we've seen over the last couple of weeks, you know, this one that you just that we're talking about right now, as well as the, the replacements of the, the regulatory head. I mean, these are obviously meant to send signals, but they are, just like Andrew said, ignoring the fundamental issues on why investors are so anxious or un uncertain or pessimistic about the market. Um, I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing these moves at the margin is because the issues that are driving investor sentiment away are just much more difficult to deal with. Um, and regulators are looking for a short-term fix. Um, they're not either in a place yet or not comfortable or maybe don't even know um, what the longer-term issues are. Or if they do know them, there's now such a culture of uncertainty uh, on the mainland or a culture of not sticking out on the mainland that they're not necessarily going to give that feedback to their higher-ups. Uh, and so those underlying structural issues in the broader economy, which are driving a lot of this investment invest down, I mean, those aren't being addressed. Um, and until that happens, I think it's pressure on the market's going to continue. Um, but for from the eyes of international investors, this is such a bad signal uh, to be sending to, to the market. Um, and it's exactly the opposite of what authorities, I think, should want, given um, the, the data we've been seeing over the past couple of days. I mean, over the weekend, we saw that, you know, foreign investments into the Chinese market reached, you know, its lowest level since 1993. Um, that should suggest moves that are much more sensitive to what the market wants rather than further undermining their confidence. Mm. And, and Andrew, what... Let... Sorry, Andrew, carry on. No, no, no. Let me add one thing, which is uh, almost moralistic, but it is so incredibly simple and it is so repeatedly forgotten that people say, well, you know, there were speculators, they were shorting the market. Look, for me to sort the market, I need somebody who is willing to buy what I'm offering. In other words, I'm offering a set of shares at a specific price at a specific time. So I'm the speculator, but the buyer never is. And this <laughs> drives me absolutely bananas because every market has always two sides. Somebody selling, then somebody's buying. Then why don't we go after the buyers as opposed to after the sellers? I mean, I think it is. it would be very nice to start punishing the people that are on the short side of the sell side. Why not? I mean, it's exactly the same. But, but this simply reflects ignorance. Mm -hmm. The notion is, is that there is a group of speculators, okay, that are selling. No, there isn't. There is a group of speculators that are buying. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's my reaction to that. I mean, it's true because people do seem to forget that for every um, seller, there must be a buyer. And if there were no Absolutely. sellers, there can't be any buyers either. Exactly. You will never see anything happening. You know, there will be no price. In other words, people that say prices are guaranteed to fall tomorrow 
Okay, and if people genuinely believe that, you might say there is going to be a rush to sell. And that's on the assumption that they're going to find somebody to buy. And if people are also convinced that prices are going to come down, okay, they're not going to buy. So prices actually, surprise, surprise, will not come down tomorrow. Mm. Do, do you agree with Nick? This is these these types of curbs uh, are making the market just untradeable, uninvestable. Well, it sounds like it depends because, of course, the market in China, we have always been told that it's hugely retail driven. And uh, if the authorities are simply concentrating on uh, on institutions, then it's interesting to see what the astute little guy or little girl is doing. But then you will need a hell of a lot of little astute boys and girls doing something together for this to either turn or shift the market in an appropriate direction. So mm. I'm not quite sure what uninvestable means, okay, mm. in the sense that I'm holding shares which I cannot sell because I'm not permitted to sell, okay, or I can I would like to buy some shares but I'm not permitted to buy. Mm. But if you're a fo- if you're an institutional investor as opposed to a retail investor, you have fiduciary duties to your clients, and therefore you have to be sure that you can sell when when you need to. And if you're now being told, well, you can't sell at the open, you can't sell at the close, you almost have to take the view. Well, soon will I ever be able to sell at all? And how do I meet those duties? Uh, uh, gosh, I'm really stepping now into dangerous grounds. Not because it is politically uh, inappropriate; it is actually perfectly all right what the Chinese are doing. A lot of other people have done it, and it still doesn't make it right. Okay, And uh, the notion here is that, sorry, let me, let me just uh, try and try to, 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 to drag this through, that the causes of the sales okay, are still somehow unfathomable or are untreatable, and that's why we are trying something that it is not right, but that's the best we can do. Well, mm. this kind of excuse, I will sort of grin and bear it. I will say, yes, we really don't know why prices are coming down because people are, of course, selling, and we're going simply to to go after the falling prices as opposed to the causes. I'm sorry, this is not a particularly intelligent answer, but that's the best that I can string out other than insisting, <laughs> please treat causes, not symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, really quickly, just to confirm, I don't think I don't take a position on whether the market is investable or not. I'm just repeating the headlines. Um, the thing I'm interested in is is more about how investors are responding to this, which I think if they're calling the market uninvestable um, is is a nice symbol of kind of where their confidence is. Um, but I don't take a position on it personally sure. or, or or on behalf of you. <laughs> well, what what sort of signal is the, uh, the 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 PBOC sending with this uh, 25 basis point cut? in the five-year loan prime rates to five and a quarter percent. It's the biggest cut on record, although 25 basis points doesn't seem huge, but nevertheless, by Chinese standards, that is big. What's the impact of that going to be and what sort of signal is that sending? I think I mean, there might be two big motivations which um, underpin this. So I'm, I'm kind of quoting what my colleague has, has been putting out here. I think the first one is really looking at the fact that um, you know there have been previous moves to ease banks' funding costs, including cuts to the reserve requirement ratio and deposit rates, allowing them to lend at lower rates. Um, and so this might be kind of part of that other motivation as well. 
Um, but the second thing, because given that uh, the nature of this latest rate um, is tied really to the benchmark rate for mor mortgages, um, I think it reflects the central bank's concerns around the property sector and the negative effects of uh, all the stress there on banks lending portfolios. Um, and so it's likely that you know the cuts here will support the housing market to a degree, although the impact's going to be felt unevenly across different market segments. Um, but that doesn't, again, address the underlying issues here that are that are uh, plaguing the Chinese real estate sector. Um, I mean, what we're seeing right now in terms of this life cycle in the property market, this kind of home sales, land acquisition, construction life cycle, uh, which was really the kind of um, the the underpinning to the property sector growth and the China's headline growth until relatively recently, that's not going to be resolved um, by these rate cuts alone. Um, and so um, I think even if we are seeing moves by the PBC, PBOC um, to show that, you know, they're, they're anxious about reviving demand here, that's not going to be enough uh, to reverse the current contraction uh, in the property market, which we're anticipating to persist through this year and maybe even into two parts of 2025 as well. Andrew, what's the impact of this going to be in your mind? Uh, I'm going to really bore your audience to death, which is a bad idea because you'll never invite me again. And that is, once again, the cut in interest rates treats symptoms and not causes. Mm. Now, let's let's take two things. First, the Chinese managed to invert their yield curve because they cut considerably more on the five-year side as opposed to the one-year side. Okay, now, an inverted yield curve in the United States is always a big no-no, all right? But not the same in China because we're talking about completely different markets. But anyway, simply technically, it looks it looks strange, okay, as part of a process uh, that it's trying to revive market. The second point, of course, is it never appeared that there was a shortage of funding in the market, and that is what drove the prices down, okay? Because first, let's not forget, the People's Bank of China in the last, I will get it wrong, but I will get it only technically wrong. If I remember well, in the last 18 months, they have cut possibly three times the reserve requirements. Well, that increases the, the liquidity of the banking sector. So now on top of the banks having a lot of, in inverted commas, a lot of uh, floating money, they are now are encouraged to actually charge even less for that. And that, of course, assumes that what really drives the market down is big development companies being unable to borrow. Big development companies, the last thing they will do right now is borrow. They mm. will want to repay back all their loans. Okay, so that really addresses only itself to the buying sector, and that is potentially the retail sector. And one of the reasons why the retail, the retail sector is not buying is because prices keep falling. Ah, now why prices keep falling? Yes, here we go again in saying, can we please find out the reasons for that as opposed to simply treating the the, the 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 symptoms so it's a nice move okay but i'm not quite sure if it has been completely thought through that this is going to encourage people to borrow in order to buy in a market which is declining mm. yeah is the the chinese government is the people's bank of china going to be constrained by what it can do on the monetary side by the fact that the fed as we've seen from the minutes that were released overnight is in no rush itself to cut interest rates so if it's not going to cut and uh, the chinese keep easing monetary policy they're going to have quite a few problems in defending the yuan aren't they well none whatsoever okay first of course i could smirk and say one part of china is completely attached to Mr. Powell's uh, apron strings, and that's Hong Kong, 
okay, we don't have a monetary policy. We have a Fed monetary policy. And Hong Kong is part of China. So strictly speaking, I should be I should be taking candy from a baby that's saying, yes, 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 part of China is going to feel that. The second part is, of course, the Chinese don't have the slightest problem with inflation. Mm-hmm. The slightest problem with inflation. They have a big problem with deflation, both in the consuming side, or say CPI, and of course in the in the, in the property sector. So observing the Americans refusing to cut interest rates is really of irrelevance to them, because their issue now is is they're cutting interest rates. Okay, so straight away, what the Fed is saying doesn't have any impact on them. And as far as the UN being allowed uh, to to depreciate, well, it's the usual thing. You can either control the price or you can control the quantity. And the the issue with the, always with foreign exchange policies is, is you cannot you cannot control both interest rates and the foreign exchange. And by cutting interest rates, the Chinese are signaling the foreign exchange may very well fall. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, great to hear your thoughts. Thank you both very much. You heard there Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, Nick Marrow, who's lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Director of Research at Cyrus Consulting in Taipei. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now we seem to be having a, a spat over um, some some islands just off uh, just off the coast of uh, China between Taipei um, and Beijing, and with Chinese coast guards boarding a Taiwanese tourist vessel uh, near the Kimin Islands. What's going on there? Yeah, so uh, Jinmen Island chain, which is just off the coast of Xiamen, has never been governed by the the PRC since the end of the Civil War. It's always been under control of Taipei. Uh, And uh, there was a recent incident off the waters of Jinmen where a Taiwan Coast Guard uh, vessel approached a small speedboat, which appeared to be fishing. uh, Taiwan would call it illegal. They would say that the boat was in the Chinese boat was in waters controlled by Taiwan and that the understanding has always always been that Chinese boats don't go into this specific area. Anyway, uh, pursued by the Taiwan Coast Guard, eventually, uh, uh, per the admission in recent days of the Taiwan side, uh, the boats collided and the, and the little uh, speedboat flipped over and two out of the four uh, people who were on board did drown. And, and uh, ever since now, there's been accusations being hurled back and forth about who's at fault. Are we going to see any evidence? And then the Taiwan side, well, we don't have uh, any video of the incident. And uh, as, as one way to retaliate, the Chinese, China side said, actually, there's no such thing as prohibited waters. It all belongs to China. And they also, re- China recently boarded a Taiwan uh, tourist boat, uh, ha- had about 20 plus passengers on it and conduct an inspection of, of the boat. And uh, this seems to be possibly a new normal, you know, just like how t- uh, China's planes fly on the other side of the center line of the Taiwan Strait, even though for decades there was an unwritten understanding that they wouldn't do that. It's now possible that China's patrol boats will enter these waters o- around Jinmen. That for decades, China and Taiwan seem to have an unwritten understanding. Of course, China's saying there is no such understanding. Our boats will go wherever we think is part of our territory. Uh, so that's where we are. Mm. So what is the risk of this escalating? Hey, yeah, there's there, there's uh, certainly a, a anger 
in the Chinese public because two people died. Two people from China did die when the boat flipped over. Uh, and there's pressure on the government. You know, the government in China still needs to respond to public pressure. And we sometimes see this when there are incidents involving uh, foreign companies that have done something to offend China, for example. Uh, and you know, in, in this context, it's, it's like a foreign boat, a foreign navy, or in this case, a Coast Guard, uh, uh, bumped into a, t a speedboat from China and flipped it over. Uh, so there's been a lot of anger on the Chinese internet, and, and we see we see some response from the Chinese government. So, really, the the, the risk the risk that it gets out of hand is is that uh, China will continue to patrol in waters that previously China did not patrol, and again that China might start to uh, uh, board Taiwan boats. With, with greater frequency. And that, of course, uh, could be a scary thing, not just for uh, civilian travelers, tourism boats, uh, but also for industry as well. Is, is this all part of the, the response to the DPP's win, William, William Lai's win in the presidential election uh, last month? And we're going to see more of this in well, the lead not up specific to... No, I'd say not specifically, because uh, you know, the, this incident with the Taiwan Coast Guard boat bumping into a, a, a China speedboat little speedboat it was unexpected this is not something that you know china didn't plan for taiwan's coast guard ship to bump into a, a chinese ship and leading to the death of two chinese nationals uh, so it was unplanned you know the part that that's planned from the china side is you know a lot of experts recently including myself have started to referring to china's toolbox and you know that includes things like military exercises uh preventing taiwan from having uh, substantive participation at international organizations, persuading countries that still have diplomatic relations with Taiwan from uh, to persuading them to break those relations and uh, putting bans on certain products from Taiwan, import bans. So they're, they're the economic uh, tools in the toolbox as well. This is now showing us that there is another tool in China's toolbox, and that is to board ships from Taiwan. Uh, they might start doing that with greater frequency uh, around Jinmen and possibly in other parts of the waters that uh, are basically are the middle between the two sides. We have this Taiwan Strait. Uh, so th there's a risk here of, of a new normal. Uh, yes, it's coincidental to Lai taking office. He takes office on May 20th. Uh, but again, I don't think this specific incident was something that China had planned for. What needs to happen to dial down um, tensions? Is there any way that they can, that the heat can be turned down a bit here between China and Taiwan? Well, the interesting thing about that question is, uh, I mentioned that there could be a new normal here, a new normal being uh, that China is going to inspect Taiwan ships with greater frequency going forward, just like they created a new normal with their aircraft flying close, ever closer to Taiwan and their Navy ships uh, sailing ever closer to Taiwan. So there, there's a risk of a new normal here, at least with regard to how uh, the two sides exercise their jurisdiction in, in their adjoining waters. Uh, but but I, I would think that China will, if they want to dial down, I mean, the, the easiest thing to do is sort of start removing content on the Chinese internet. So and try, try to get their own netizens to stop crying murder and that they want some kind of revenge. I mean, that's something certainly that China could do. Mm, because it, it's not really maintaining the status quo, is it? Which is what the international community, particularly the US, wants to see uh, both China and Taiwan do. It seems that the, the lines are getting uh, more and more blurred about what's, what's normal and what isn't. 
Well, that's why we talk about new normals. Uh, and, and again, ever since Pelosi visited Taiwan in August of 2022, we certainly have a new normal as far as where Chinese planes and, and ships uh, fly and sail. Uh, and again, there's a risk here of a new normal for how the two sides exercise their jurisdiction in the waters. I mean, certainly uh, Taiwan's uh, fishing fleet, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in industry, uh, you know, the, the sea transportation industry. I mean, nobody on this side of, uh, is, is rooted for more inspections by Chinese Navy or the Chinese Coast Guard. Uh, you know, that increases the, the potential for other things that could possibly lead to further tensions between the two sides. Now, there's also tensions increasing between the US and China on the trade fronts. The US is saying it's going to act if China dumps goods onto the global markets. And we're also seeing uh, more reports about how China is circumventing some of these tariffs and sanctions by um, exporting to the US through third countries like Mexico, presumably in an election year in the US. This is going to become a bigger and bigger issue. Yeah, well, I, I suppose on the other side of that, at least the two sides are having economic dialogue, right? <laughs> you know, and this is one of the things that the Biden administration had sought for so long was resumption of some of these bilateral dialogue mechanisms. And the economic dialogue mechanism is one that has uh, started up again. So the two sides do have talks. And I guess the, the, the U.S. side comes and says, stop dumping. And the Chinese side says, we're not dumping. Uh, but in an election year, I think Biden administration and Biden himself will want to show that you know, they are protecting American industry and American workers. So I wouldn't be surprised if certain Chinese goods get targeted for investigation as well as action uh, after an investigation. I mean, what's interesting is that um, Beijing's running trade surpluses um, with countries like Vietnam, Singapore, the Philippines. They in turn are running widening surpluses with the US. So it does rather suggest that China's manufacturers are still managing to get their goods um, into the US and satisfy by uh, the U.S. consumers' demand for, for their goods. Well, the, the interesting thing there is uh, it leads to inevitable question. That's why investigation on a case-by-case -case basis is necessary. Are these goods merely being transshipped? Are they spending one hour in Vietnam and a label is, is affixed to it that says made in Vietnam? Or, as we also know, is that Chinese companies have moved part of their manufacturing uh, and supply chain to some of these countries? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, talk, we often talk about American or Taiwan or European companies uh, moving some of their manufacturing and, and supply chains away from China and reestablishing those operations in places such as Vietnam or Malaysia or Thailand or increasingly India. So I'm sure there's going to be some disputes where, where Chinese companies say, whoa, whoa, wait a second, we didn't just have a made in Vietnam label on it. We're not trying to break American uh, uh, laws or, or uh, anti-dumping tariffs. We actually moved our supply chain and our manufacturing hub to Vietnam, uh, Thailand, or, or Malaysia. It's not something that Chinese companies like to brag about per se uh, because it's, it's unpatriotic of them, I guess, move their manufacturing to other locations. But we do know that this is a, it's a fact that they are doing that as well. If American, European, Taiwan companies, uh, there's value and a good idea to move some of their manufacturing to these locations. And Chinese companies, they're smart. They're going to do it too. Mm, it does show the difficulty, doesn't it, of trying to reorder global supply chains like the US wants to, to instead rely on, instead of relying on China to rely more on friendly nations, you know, like the Philippines, um, when China itself is, is putting its supply chains through exactly those same countries. 
Well, we know what, what the solution for industry is. It's the S word, subsidies. Give me subsidies. Subsidize mm-hmm. my land. Give me tax breaks. Uh, give me other types of uh, subsidies to move my operation to your location, whether that's somewhere in Southeast Asia, somewhere in India, or you know, under the CHIPS Act in the United States, where even the United States, which so, for so long complained about Chinese or European subsidies, the United States is also going to give some very significant subsidies to semiconductor companies. And let me finally ask you about uh, the US FBI, Christopher Wray, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, saying Beijing's efforts to covertly plant offensive malware inside US critical infrastructure networks is now at a scale greater than we've seen um, before, and he deems it a defining national security threat. How big an issue is this going to become? Uh it could be an issue in the presidential election, but I think for the most part, the Chinese, the China talk in the presidential election will probably still center around trade. And Biden will say, I'm trying to protect the American worker and American industry. And Trump will say he's going to raise tariffs to a much higher level uh, on Chinese goods if he's elected to a new term. Uh, but Chris, Christopher Ray, to his credit, the FBI director, he does talk about uh, these kinds of issues very often or with, with greater frequency in, in recent times versus when he started his tenure at the FBI, uh, but he, he does talk a lot about this, whether it's hacking, the installation of malware coming from uh, bad actors, whether they're in China or Russia. It's something that the FBI is focused on, whether or not uh, industry is, is going to move at greater speed or any speed to uh, remedy these issues. It's hard to be uh, optimistic simply because industry has allowed this to happen on their watch. Uh, so they're, they're going to have to figure out a way to dig themselves out of this hole. And then once again, I'll, I'll read what I said earlier in, in, the, in the conversation about trade and goods, there's the S word, uh, you know, industry will subsidies to remedy some of these things. And wouldn't surprise me if Congress did provide subsidies, keeping in mind there's a recent precedent uh, for such kind of subsidies where uh, internet service providers and telecom companies across America were getting, getting subsidies to rip and replace, rip out Huawei uh, gear and install uh, you know, safer gear in their networks, and, and government did subsidize that as well. Ross, thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, who's yeah. Director of Research at Cyrus Consulting over in Taipei. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Mark Toe, Managing Director of Asset Management at the Wing Fung Financial Group. And with a view from Australia and New Zealand is Mike Gibbs-Harris, Director of MGH Asset Management in Wellington, New Zealand. Have a good day. Money Talk. 